Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, an unusual story from Jack London, called The People of the Abyss. It's a collection of stories from a visit he made to London in 1902, and I'll let him explain the rest to you in the foreword. We'll be doing chapters 1 and 2. For those of you who want more, go to gutenberg.org, search for Jack London, People of the Abyss. Hope you enjoy it. The experiences related in this volume fell to me in the summer of 1902. I went down into the underworld of London with an attitude of mind which I may best liken to that of the explorer. I was open to be convinced by the evidence of my eyes, rather than by the teachings of those who had not seen, or by the words of those who had seen and gone before. Further, I took with me certain simple criteria with which to measure the life of the underworld. That which made for more life, for physical and spiritual health, was good. That which made for less life, which hurt and dwarfed and distorted life, was bad. It will be readily apparent to the reader that I saw much that was bad. Yet it must not be forgotten that the time of which I write was considered good times in England. The starvation and lack of shelter I encountered constituted a chronic condition of misery which is never wiped out, even in the periods of greatest prosperity. Following the summer in question came a hard winter. Great numbers of the unemployed formed into processions, as many as a dozen at a time, and daily marched through the streets of London crying for bread. Mr. Justin McCarthy, writing in the month of January 1903 to the New York Independent, briefly epitomizes the situation as follows. The workhouses have no space left in which to pack the starving crowds who are craving every day and night at their doors for food and shelter. All the charitable institutions have exhausted their means in trying to raise supplies of food for the famishing residents of the garrets and cellars of London lanes and alleys. The quarters of the Salvation Army in various parts of London are nightly besieged by hosts of the unemployed and the hungry for whom neither shelter nor the means of sustenance can be provided. Then Jack London picks up the story again here in his foreword. It has been urged that the criticism I have passed on things as they are in England is too pessimistic. I must say, in extenuation, that of optimists I am the most optimistic. But I measure manhood less by political aggregations than by individuals. Society grows while political machines rack to pieces and become scrap. For the English, so far as manhood and womanhood and health and happiness go, I see a broad and smiling future. But for a great deal of the political machinery, which at present mismanages for them, I see nothing else than the scrap heap. Jack London, Piedmont, California, 1902. Chapter 1. The Descent "'But you can't do it, you know,' friend said, to whom I applied for assistance in the matter of sinking myself down into the east end of London. "'You'd better see the police for a guide,' they added. On second thought, painfully endeavoring to adjust themselves to the psychological processes of a madman who had come to them with better credentials than brains. "'But I don't want to see the police,' I protested. "'What I wish to do is to go down into the East End and see things for myself. "'I wish to know how those people are living there, and why they are living there, and what they are living for. "'In short, I am going to live there myself.' "'You don't want to live down there,' everybody said, with disapprobation writ large upon their faces. "'Why, it is said there are places where a man's life isn't worth tuppence.' "'The very places I want to see,' I broke in. "'But you can't, you know,' was the unfailing rejoinder. "'Which is not what I came to see you about,' I answered brusquely, 
"'somewhat nettled by their incomprehension. "'I am a stranger here, "'and I want you to tell me what you know of the East End, "'in order that I may have something to start on.' "'But we know nothing of the East End. "'It is over there, somewhere.' "'And they waved their hands vaguely in the direction "'where the sun on rare occasions may be seen to rise. "'Then I shall go to Cook's,' I announced. "'Oh, yes,' they said, with relief. "'Cook's will be sure to know. "'But, oh, Cook!' O oh, Thomas Cook and Son, pathfinders and trail clearers, living signposts to all the world, and bestowers of first aid to bewildered travelers, unhesitatingly and instantly, with ease and celerity, could you send me to darkest Africa or, or innermost Tibet, but to the east end of London, barely a stone's throw distant from Ludgate Circus? You know not the way? You can't do it, you know said the human emporium of routes and fares at Cook's Cheapside Branch. It's so... unusual. Consult the police, he concluded authoritatively, when I had persisted. We are not accustomed to taking travelers to the East End. We received no call to take them there, and we know nothing whatsoever about the place at all. Never mind that, I interposed, to save myself from being swept out of the office by his flood of negations. Here's something you can do for me. I wish you to understand in advance what I intend doing, so that in case of trouble, you may be able to identify me. Ah, I see. Should you be murdered, we would be in position to identify the corpse. He said it so cheerfully and cold-bloodedly that on the instant I saw my stark and mutilated cadaver stretched upon a slab where cool waters trickled ceaselessly, and him I saw bending over and sadly and patiently identifying it as the body of the insane American who would see the East End. No, I answered. "'merely to identify me in case I get into a scrape with the bobbies. "'This last I said with a thrill. "'Truly, I was gripping hold of the vernacular. "'That,' he said, "'is a matter for the consideration of the chief office. "'It's so unprecedented, you know,' he added, apologetically. "'The man at the chief office hemmed and hawed. "'We make it a rule,' he explained, "'to give no information concerning our clients.' "'But in this case,' I urged, "'It is the client who requests you to give the information concerning himself.' "'Again he hemmed and hawed. "'Of course,' I hastily anticipated. "'I know it is unprecedented, but as I was about to remark,' he went on steadily, "'it is unprecedented, and I don't think we could do anything for you. "'However, I departed with the address of a detective who lived in the East End "'and took my way to the American Consul General. "'And here, at last, I found a man with whom I could do business.' There was no hemming and hawing, no lifted brows, open incredulity, or blank amazement. In one minute I explained myself and my project, which he accepted as a matter of course. In the second minute he asked my age, height, and weight, and looked me over. And in the third minute, as we shook hands at parting, he said, All right, Jack, I'll remember you, and keep track. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to People of the Abyss by Jack London. I breathed a sigh of relief. Having burnt my ships behind me, I was now free to plunge into that human wilderness of which nobody seemed to know anything. But at once I encountered a new difficulty in the shape of my cabby, a grey-whiskered and eminently decorous personage who had imperturbably driven me for several hours about the city. Drive me down to the east end, I ordered, taking my seat. Where, sir? He said with frank surprise. To the east end. Anywhere. Go on. The handsome pursued an aimless way for several minutes, then came to a puzzled stop. The aperture above my head was uncovered, and the cabman peered down perplexedly at me. 
"'I say,' he said, "'what place you want to go?' "'East End,' I repeated. "'Nowhere in particular. "'Just drive me around, anywhere.' "'But what's the address, sir?' "'See here,' I thundered. "'Drive me down to the East End, and at once.' "'It was evident that he did not understand, "'but he withdrew his head "'and grumblingly started his horse. "'Nowhere in the streets of London "'may one escape the sight of abject poverty, "'while five minutes' walk from almost any point "'will bring one to a slum. "'But the region my handsome was now penetrating "'was one unending slum. "'The streets were filled with a new and different race of people, "'short of stature, "'and of wretched or beer-sodden appearance. "'We rolled along through miles of bricks and squalor, "'and from each cross-street and alley "'flashed long vistas of bricks and misery.' Here and there lurched a drunken man or woman, and the air was obscene with sounds of jangling and squabbling. At a market, tottery old men and women were searching in the garbage thrown in the mud for rotten potatoes, beans, and vegetables, while little children clustered like flies around a festering mass of fruit, thrusting their arms to the shoulders into the liquid corruption and drawing forth morsels, but partially decayed, which they devoured on the spot. Not another handsome did I see, within all our drive, while mine was like an apparition from another and better world, the way children ran after it and alongside. And as far as I could see were the solid walls of brick, the slimy pavements, and the screaming streets, and for the first time in my life the fear of the crowd smote me. It was like the fear of the sea, and the miserable multitudes, street upon street, seemed so many waves of a vast and melodious sea, lapping about me and threatening to well up and over me. "'Stepney, sir! Stepney Station!' "'the cabby called down. "'I looked about. "'It was really a railroad station, "'and he had driven desperately to it "'as the one familiar spot he'd ever heard of "'in all that wilderness. "'Well?' I said. "'He spluttered unintelligibly, "'shook his head, and looked very miserable. "'I'm a stranger here,' "'he managed to articulate. "'And if you don't want Stepney Station, "'I'm blessed if I know what you do want. "'I'll tell you what I want,' I said. "'You drive along and keep your eye out for a shop where old clothes are sold. "'Now when you see such a shop, drive right on till you turn the corner, "'then stop and let me out.' "'I could see that he was growing dubious of his fare, "'but not long afterwards he pulled up to the curb "'and informed me that an old clothes shop was to be found a bit of the way back. "'Won't you pay me?' he pleaded. "'There's seven and six owing me.' "'Yes,' I laughed, and it would be the last I'd see of you.' "'It'll be the last I see of you if you don't pay me,' he retorted. "'But a crowd of ragged onlookers had already gathered around the cab, "'and I laughed again and walked back to the old clothes shop. "'Here the chief difficulty was in making the shopman understand "'that I really and truly wanted old clothes. "'But after fruitless attempts to press upon me new and impossible coats and trousers, "'he began to bring to light heaps of old ones, "'looking mysterious the while and hinting darkly.' This he did with the palpable intention of letting me know that he had piped my lay in order to bulldoze me, through fear of exposure, into paying heavily for my purchases. A man in trouble, or high-class criminal from across the water, was what he took my measure for, in either case, a person anxious to avoid the police. But I disputed with him over the outrageous difference between prices and values, till I quite disabused him of the notion, and he settled down to drive a hard bargain with a hard customer. In the end I selected a pair of stout, though well-worn trousers, a frayed jacket with one remaining button, a pair of brogans which had plainly seen service where coal was shoveled, a thin leather belt, and a very dirty cloth cap. My underclothing and socks, however, were new and warm, but of the sort that any American waif, down in his luck, 
could acquire in the ordinary course of events. "'I must say you're a sharpin,' he said, with counterfeit admiration, as I handed over the ten shillings finally agreed upon for the outfit. "'Blimey if you ain't been up and down Petticut Lane afore now. Your trousers is worth five bob to any man, and a docker give two and six for the shoes, to say nothing of a coat and cap and new stucker singlet and other things. How much will you give me for them?' I demanded suddenly. "'I paid you ten bob for the lot, and I'll sell them back to you right now, for eight. Come on, it's a go.' But he grinned and shook his head, and though I'd made a good bargain, I was unpleasantly aware that he had made a better one. I found the cabbie and a policeman with their heads together, but the latter, after looking me over sharply, and particularly scrutinizing the bundle under my arm, turned away and left the cabbie to wax mutinous by himself. And not a step would he budge till I paid him the seven shillings and sixpence owing him, whereupon he was willing to drive me to the ends of the earth, apologizing profusely for his insistence, and explaining that one ran across strange customers in London town. But he drove me only to Highbury Vale, in North London, where my luggage was waiting for me. Here, next day, I took off my shoes, not without regret for their lightness and comfort, and my soft gray traveling suit, and in fact all my clothing, and proceeded to array myself in the clothes of the other and unimaginable men, who must have been indeed unfortunate to have had to part with such rags for the pitiable sums obtainable from a dealer. Inside my stoker's singlet, in the armpit, I sewed a gold sovereign, an emergency sum certainly of modest proportions, and inside my stoker's singlet I put myself. And then I sat down and moralized upon the fair years and fat, which had made my skin soft and brought the nerves close to the surface, for the singlet was rough and raspy as a hair shirt, and I am confident that the most rigorous of ascetics suffer no more than I did in the ensuing twenty-four hours. The remainder of my costume was fairly easy to put on, though the brogans, or brogues, were quite a problem. As stiff and hard as if made of wood, it was only after a prolonged pounding of the uppers with my fists that I was able to get my feet into them at all. Then, with a few shillings, a knife, a handkerchief, and some brown papers and flake tobacco stowed away in my pockets, I thumped down the stairs and said good-bye to my foreboding friends. As I passed out of the door, the help, a comely middle-aged woman, could not conquer a grin that twisted her lips and separated them till the throat, out of involuntary sympathy, made the uncouth animal noises were wont to designate as laughter. No sooner was I out on the streets than I was impressed by the difference in status affected by my clothes. All servility vanished from the demeanor of the common people with whom I came in contact. Presto! In the twinkling of an eye, so to say, I had become one of them. My frayed and out-at-elbows jacket was the badge and advertisement of my class, which was their class. It made me of like kind, and in place of the fawning and too respectful attention I had hitherto received, I now shared with them a comradeship. The man in corduroy and dirty neckerchief no longer addressed me as sir or governor. It was mate now, and a fine and hearty word with a tingle to it, and a warmth and gladness, which the other term does not possess. Governor! It smacks of mastery and power and high authority, the tribute of the man who is under to the man on top, delivered in the hope that he will let up a bit and ease his weight, which is another way of saying that it is an appeal for alms. This brings me to a delight I experienced in my rags and tatters which is denied the average American abroad. The European traveler from the States, who is not a Croesus, speedily finds himself reduced to a chronic state of self-conscious sordidness by the hordes of cringing robbers who clutter his steps from dawn till dark and deplete his pocketbook in a way that puts compound interest to the blush. 
In my rags and tatters I escaped the pestilence of tipping, and encountered men on a basis of equality. Nay, before the day was out I turned the tables, and said most gratefully, "'Thank you, sir,' to a gentleman whose horse I held, and who dropped a penny into my eager palm. Other changes I discovered were wrought in my condition by my new garb. In crossing crowded thoroughfares I found I had to be, if anything, more lively in avoiding vehicles, and it was strikingly impressed upon me that my life had cheapened in direct ratio with my clothes. When before I inquired the way of a policeman, I was usually asked, "'Bus or handsome, sir?' "'But now the query became, "'Walk or ride?' "'Also at the railway stations, "'a third-class ticket was now shoved out to me "'as a matter of course. "'But there was compensation for it all. "'For the first time I met the English lower classes "'face to face, and knew them for what they were. "'When loungers and workmen at street corners "'and in public houses talked with me, "'they talked as one man to another, "'and they talked as natural men should talk, "'without the least idea of getting anything out of me "'for what they talked or the way they talked. "'And when at last I made into the East End, "'I was gratified to find that the fear of the crowd "'no longer haunted me. "'I had become part of it. "'The vast and melodorous sea had welled up and over me, "'or I had slipped gently into it, "'and there was nothing fearsome about it, "'with the one exception of the Stoker's singlet. "'We'll return with Chapter 2, "'right after the sponsor message. "'And now Chapter 2 of People of the Abyss. Titled, Johnny Upright. I shall not give you the address of Johnny Upright. Let it suffice that he lives in the most respectable street in the East End, a street that would be considered very mean in America, but a veritable oasis in the desert of East London. It is surrounded on every side by close-packed squalor and streets jammed by a young and vile and dirty generation, but its own pavements are comparatively bare of the children who have no other place to play. "'while it has an air of desertion, "'so few are the people that come and go. "'Each house in this street, as in all the streets, "'is shoulder to shoulder with its neighbors. "'To each house there is but one entrance, the front door, "'and each house is about eighteen feet wide, "'with a bit of brick-walled yard behind, "'where, when it's not raining, "'one may look at the slate-colored sky. "'But it must be understood that this is east-end opulence "'we are now considering.' Some of the people in this street are even so well-to-do as to keep a slavey. Johnny Upright keeps one, as I well know, she being my first acquaintance in this particular portion of the world. To Johnny Upright's house I came, and to the door came the slavey. Now mark you, her position in life was pitiable and contemptible, but it was with pity and contempt that she looked at me. She evinced a plain desire that our conversation should be short. It was Sunday, "'and Johnny Upright was not at home, "'and that was all there was to it. "'But I lingered, discussing whether or not "'it was all there was, it was all there was to it, till Mrs. Johnny, "'till Mrs. Johnny Upright was attracted to the door, "'where she scolded the girl for not having closed it "'before turning her attention to me. "'No, Mr. Johnny Upright was not at home, "'and further, he saw nobody on Sunday. "'It is too bad,' said I. "'Was I looking for work? "'No, quite the contrary. "'In fact, "'I had come to see Johnny Upright on business "'which might be profitable to him. "'A change came over the face of things at once. "'The gentleman in question was at church, "'but would be home in an hour or thereabouts, "'when no doubt he could be seen. "'Would I kindly step in? "'No, the lady did not ask me, "'but I fished for an invitation "'by stating that I would go down to the corner "'and wait at a public house. "'And down to the corner I went, "'but it being church time, the pub was closed.' 
a miserable drizzle was falling, and in lieu of better I took a seat on a neighborly doorstep and waited. And here to the doorstep came the slavey, very frowsy and very perplexed, to tell me that the missus would let me come back and wait in the kitchen. So many people come here looking for work, Mrs. Johnny Upright apologetically explained, so I hope you won't feel bad the way I spoke. Not at all, not at all, I replied in my grandest manner, for the nonce investing my rags with dignity. I quite understand, I assure you. I suppose people looking for work almost worry you to death. That they do, she answered, with an eloquent and expressive glance, and thereupon ushered me into, not the kitchen, but the dining room. A favor, I took it, in recompense for my grand manner. This dining room on the same floor as the kitchen was about four feet below the level of the ground, and so dark, it was midday, that I had to wait a space for my eyes to adjust themselves to the gloom. Dirty light filtered in through a window, the top of which was on a level with a sidewalk, and in this light I found that I was able to read newspaper print. And here, while waiting the coming of Johnny Upright, let me explain my errand. While living, eating, and sleeping with the people of the East End, it was my intention to have a port of refuge, not too far distant, into which I could run now and again to assure myself that good clothes and cleanliness still existed. Also, in such port I could receive my mail, work up my notes, and sally forth occasionally in changed garb to civilization. But this involved a dilemma. A lodging where my property would be safe implied a landlady apt to be suspicious of a gentleman leading a double life, while a landlady who would not bother her head over the double life of her lodgers would imply lodgings where property was unsafe. To avoid the dilemma was what had brought me to Johnny Upright, a detective of thirty-odd years' continuous service in the East End. Known far and wide by a name given him by a convicted felon in the dock, he was just the man to find me an honest landlady and make her rest easy concerning the strange comings and goings of which I might be guilty. His two daughters beat him home from church, and pretty girls they were in their Sunday dresses. With all, it was the certain weak and delicate prettiness which characterizes the cockney lasses, a prettiness which is no more than a promise with no grip on time, and doomed to fade quickly away like the color from the sunset sky. They looked me over with frank curiosity, as though I were some sort of a strange animal, and then ignored me utterly for the rest of my wait. Then Johnny Upright himself arrived, and I was summoned upstairs to confer with him. "'Speak loud,' he interrupted my opening words. "'I've got a bad cold, and I can't hear well.' "'Shades of Old Sleuth and Sherlock Holmes. "'I wondered as to where the assistant was located "'whose duty it was to take down whatever information "'I might loudly vouchsafe. "'And to this day, much as I have seen of Johnny Upright, "'and much as I have puzzled over the incident, "'I've never been quite able to make up my mind "'as to whether or not he had had a cold "'or had an assistant planted in the other room. "'But of one thing I am sure.' "'though I gave Johnny Upright the facts concerning myself and project. "'He withheld judgment till the next day, "'when I dodged into his street conventionally garbed and in a hansom. "'Then his greeting was cordial enough, "'and I went down into the dining room to join the family at tea. "'We are humble here,' he said, "'not given to the flesh, "'and you must take us for what we are in our humble way.' "'The girls were flushed and embarrassed at greeting me, "'while he did not make it any the easier for them. "'Ah!' "'he roared heartily, slapping the table with his open hand till the dishes rang. "'The girls thought yesterday you'd come to ask for a piece of bread. "'Ho, ho!' "'This they indignantly denied, with snapping eyes and guilty red cheeks, "'as though it were an essential of true refinement to be able to discern under his rags "'a man who had no need to go ragged. "'And then while I ate bread and marmalade, 
proceeded to play at cross-purposes, the daughters deeming it an insult to me that I should have been mistaken for a beggar, and the father considering it as the highest compliment to my cleverness to succeed in being so mistaken. All of which I enjoyed, and the bread, the marmalade, and the tea, till the time came for Johnny Upright to find me a lodging, which he did, not a half a dozen doors away, in his own respectable and opulent street, in a house as like to his own, as a pea to its mate. Thanks for joining us for these first two chapters of People of the Abyss by Jack London, an unusual story about his stay in London's East End. If you'd like to read the book, go to gutenberg.org and search People of the Abyss by Jack London, and the book is there free for you. We try to bring you a wide breadth of stories here at 1001 Classic Short Stories, and this is one more example of the great pieces of classic literature that are out there that give us not only history, but provide us with a window to a different time and culture. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.